0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for On the Safe Side, a monthly podcast hosted by the editors of Safety and Health Magazine, the official magazine of the National Safety Council. My name is Kevin Drewley, and I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health. With me, as always, are fellow associate editors Alan Ferguson and Barry Botino. This is our February episode, the 24th and On the Safe Side Annals, and we send our sincere thanks for spending some time with us wherever you're listening to us today. If you want to catch up with all the news from around the occupational safety world, please check us out online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. We know that all of you have had a unique journey into the safety profession, and we want to hear about it for the My Story column in our magazine. We invite you and your colleagues to submit your personal stories of how that career in safety came about by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org. In this month's episode, Alan will take us on a deep dive into his feature story that itself is a deep dive into processes and protocols related to OSHA emergency temporary standards. We also will be joined by Dr. Christina Socias morales of NIOSH's Division of Safety Research for our Five Questions With interview segment. Christina will discuss ladder safety as we approach March, which the American Ladder Institute recognizes as National Ladder Safety Month, and also stay tuned for our pop quiz, when this trio of reformed sports writers will address our sports viewing tendencies of the dreaded post-super bowl lull is everybody ready let's get this episode rolling
1: each month here at on the safe side we expand on a feature story from the pages of safety and health magazine which we call our deep dive segment in our february issue alan writes about all things osha emergency temporary standards In this unique feature, Alan examines some of the common questions about how an ETS works and some of the legal questions surrounding the COVID-19 vaccination testing and masking ETS, which is certainly a hot topic in occupational safety and health circles. Alan, we look forward to getting the lowdown on this story. Would you step out on the diving board and get ready to leap into that pool of ETS questions?
2: Well, thank you so much, Barry. And I guess some breaking news first. Um, as of this taping is the same day that um, the Supreme Court has issued a stay on OSHA's COVID-19 vaccination or testing and masking ETS. So that, that definitely changes things. But my, but my story is more about kind of how ETSs work in general. And this story came about because of a webinar we held in October. And I saw some of the questions and I thought back to when I started here. I didn't know all that much about regulations. I didn't know all that much about OSHA either. And I saw some questions where people didn't quite understand certain things. And again, that's not uncommon at all when it uh, comes to ocean regulations. I'm not trying to cast dispersions on anyone. So I, I was just trying to help. Um, and I tried my best here to give some information about how regulations in ETSs work. And I, I covered the subject of regulations a couple times before in Safety and Health. It, there was a general duty clause feature from January 2020 and a feature on deregulation in October 2018, in which I wrote about the process, which is virtually no different than the process of promulgating regulations, it's just in reverse. And so one person asked or made a statement that don't OSHA regulations cover all workplaces? Well, that's not exactly correct. There are certain workplaces that OSHA doesn't cover, namely some municipal ones. The Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, also known as the OSHAC, also doesn't cover self-employed workers, immediate family members of farm employees, and workers whose hazards are regulated by another federal agency. For example, truck drivers who are covered by the Federal Motor Carrier Safety Administration, or FMCSA. Congress has also inserted language in many of its recent appropriation bills that prohibit OSHA from using its funds to administer or enforce its standards on employers who have 10 or fewer employees and have a DART rate that stays away restricted or transferred, of course, that's lower than the national average. Also, employers with 10 or fewer employees who take part in farming operations and don't operate a temporary labor camp are exempt from OSHA actions. Also, another example where OSHA standards don't cover every workplace are OSHA record-keeping standards, and those don't apply to employers who have 10 or fewer workers, and that total includes seasonal temporary contractors at all um, during an entire calendar year. If an employee hires an 11th employee at any time during that year, then the record-keeping standards apply. And OSHA's electronic reporting of Form 300A, at least as of this taping, covers establishments with 250-plus employees or those with 20 to 249 employees in certain high-hazard industry. And obviously, the COVID-19 vaccination or testing and masking ETS that was just... um, stayed by the Supreme Court, was covered employers with 100-plus employees. And so the reason why OSHA did that and why OSHA does that, kind of puts employee limits on, is that standards have to be economically and technologically feasible. For example, you can't require a company to purchase $100 million in equipment to be in line with the standard if it's a $10 million organization. And for that uh, COVID vaccination or testing and masking ETS, OSHA chose the em- 100 employee threshold because it was confident that employers with 100 or more employees have the administrative capacity to implement the standards requirements properly, but is less confident that smaller employers can do so without undue disruption. So basically, it's more feasible for those employers. Those are some examples where, yes, OSHA regulations and state regulations cover a number of employees, but not everyone.
1: Well, Alan, one of the questions uh, in your story was, how long is an ETS good for? Um, can you speak a little bit to that? Sure. Um,
2: a lot of answers or information you'll see or generally hear is about six months, and that's because Section 6C3 of the OSHA Act states that the Department of Labor, OSHA, et cetera, shall promulgate a standard, dot, 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 no later than six months after publication of the emergency standard. However, right above that, in Section 6C2, the OSHA Act states that an ETS shall remain effective until superseded by standard promulgated in accordance with the procedures prescribed in paragraph 3 of the subsection. OSHA, though, you know, actually withdrew much of its other ETS—the one for healthcare workers—because it wasn't going to get a permanent standard done in six months. But the only thing that will keep going here are the record keeping requirements. And there have been so few ETS and even fewer ETSs that haven't been struck down by the courts. Um, the prior ETS before the healthcare one was the one for uh, was one for asbestos in 1983, and that gives you an idea of how rare this is. There's is really not a firm playbook on what to expect for OSHA in these situations.
0: Another question, Alan, was, does an ETS require congressional approval? What's your take on that?
2: Well, this was a good question. This was one probably sparked my interest in this feature as much as the first question that we heard, and the answer is no. Congress gave the executive branch's agencies the ability to promulgate regulations via the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946, and one of the central planks of that legislation is what's known as notice and comment. All regulations require publication in the Federal Register, and virtually all of them provide for a comment period, whether that's 30 days, 60 days, or what have you. Uh, An ETS is a rare exception to notice and comment, however. And while Congress doesn't have to approve regulations, it has a method of disapproving regulations via the Congressional Review Act, which was included in the Small Business Regulatory Enforcement Fairness Act of 1996. But the bar is set fairly high, though. to overturn a regulation, both houses of Congress need to approve a joint resolution and the president needs to sign it, or Congress would need enough votes to override a presidential veto after approving the joint resolution. And Congress also has a taking clock with the CRA and that 60 legislative days or days when it's in session. And that's in part why the CRA was successfully used only once from 96 to 2017, and that was to repeal OSHA's ergonomic standard in 2001. And it was used 16 times during the Trump administration. It's been used three times so far in the Biden administration. And for OSHA's latest ETS, again, which was stayed by the Supreme Court, the Senate actually approved a CRA resolution on December 8th to repeal OSHA's COVID-19 vaccination or testing and masking ETS. However, that's highly, highly doubtful the House will take this up, especially given the recent news. Even then, it would need a presidential signature or two-thirds vote to override a veto. Um, So I hope that helps anyone out there curious about regulations. And there are a couple of ways to learn about upcoming regulations or get the status of ones that are in the works um, to get email alerts from the Federal Register and Ocean. Other agency actions, you can go to federalregister.gov, type the agency name in the search bar, then then click the subscribe link on the right side of the page. And... Individuals and organizations also can provide comments on regulations. Usually that's by going to regulations.gov and entering the docket number, which you can find in the Federal Register Notice, among other places. For example, it's usually OSHA 2022-0001. You put that into the search bar and you find the comment docket. Also, the White House's Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, or IRA, uh, publishes a regulatory agenda twice each year with updates on forthcoming regulations in their current stages. And to find the current reg agenda, go to reginfo.gov slash public slash do slash little e, capital A agenda main, all one word. That's M-A-I-N. So E agenda main. OIRA also has a list of major major regulations in different stages that are undergoing review, and that's one of the final steps before publication in the federal register and that list is available at a very similar sounding website slash public do little e little o capital r review capital r and review and search so it's eo review search and if you're a small business, the Small Business Administration will hold what's known as SABRIFA or SBAR panels regarding certain regulations from time to time. I believe there is an upcoming one on workplace violence and health care and social assistance. And finally, of course, there's Safety and Health Magazine for news on regulations as well.
1: Well, thanks so much, Alan. We appreciate the interesting deep dive. I'm sure our listeners are a little more knowledgeable now about ETSs because of it. If you want to read more about the inner workings of an ETS via Alan's story or catch up on other news from around the safety world, please check out the February issue of Safety and Health Magazine, or you can log on to safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Every safety professional out there has a unique story. So what's yours? Safety and Health Magazine wants to hear about your unique path into the occupational health and safety field for our My Story column. Email your submission to safehealth at nsc.org to share the road you traveled in your career journey of keeping workers safe and healthy. Issues with ladder
2: safety have been an unfortunate staple on recent list of OSHA's top 10 violations and came in at number three on the latest list published in Safety and Health Magazine in December. With that in mind, with National Ladder Safety Month coming up in March, we want to address that topic in our five questions with segment with our guests, Dr. Christina Sosius-Morales from NIOSH's Division of Safety Research. doctor Socius Sosius-Morales, thank you so much for joining us on the safe side.
3: Thank you. It's, it's great to be here.
2: So what are the most frequent safety issues when it comes to ladders?
3: Um, Although this isn't an exhaustive list, the most common safety issues involving portable ladders can be classified into four categories. Selection, inspection, positioning, and use. Uh, Safely using a ladder involves selecting the right type of ladder to match the job. Some common considerations include that a ladder must be the right height because if it's too short it can lead to overreaching or ladder instability. The ladder also needs to have the right duty rating, which is the maximum amount of weight the ladder is manufactured to safely support and means that it's strong enough to handle the weight of the user and any equipment. If the ladder has an insufficient duty rating, it can lead to structural failure of the ladder. And it's also important to consider the ladder material, which should be non-conductive when working near live wires to avoid the risk of electrocution and subsequent loss of balance. So all ladders also need to be inspected to ensure that there's no damage that can cause failure of critical structural components. Um, If there's any bent rails, missing rungs, bolts, cleats, screws, loose components, or other defects, it must be immediately marked as defective or tagged with do not use or similar language. So ladders also need to be positioned correctly on a level supportive surface without contaminants to avoid instability, sliding, or tipping over sideways. Um, The ladder should be positioned in an area of low traffic or have barriers around it to prevent another person or equipment from bumping it as well. Um, For extension ladders, the angle of the ladder should be about 75 degrees and uh, we'll talk about that again later. Um, Another consideration for extension ladders to ensure the ladder extends at least three feet above the roof or the structure edge to reduce the risk of tipping or sliding sideways. And finally when you're using a ladder you should avoid overreaching or extensively pulling away from the ladder or pushing off the ladder. It's important to maintain three points of contact when practical if you're moving up and down the ladder and that means having both hands um, on the ladder while one foot is moving or both feet on the ladder while uh, one of your hands is moving. A ladder user should never step above the second highest step on a step, step ladder or the fourth highest rung on an extension ladder. Um, so these are the, uh, some of the most common safety considerations that um, you'll see when using a ladder.
0: There are different kinds of ladders out there, as you've mentioned, as well as some other considerations. So how can people choose the right ladder for a job or task? Uh,
3: The most common types of ladders are um, the step ladder or the extension or straight ladder. And more recently, there's also some multi-purpose ladders that have come on the market with different structural designs, allowing for multiple configurations. So a good example of that is a ladder that can be reconfigured as a step ladder or switch to an extension ladder or a straight ladder of different heights. And uh, the portable ladder type should be selected according to the task that needs to be performed at elevation, as we discussed before. Uh, Typically, step ladders are designed for tasks that are performed at lower heights and require more time. Um, Whereas extension ladders are more appropriate for shorter tasks, but maybe at higher locations. And multi-purpose ladders are great for um, when you need to do a variety of tasks at different heights and you can reconfigure the ladder.
1: Now this is something that's caused a little bit of controversy in the past with our safety and health readers. But should workers use ladder rungs or rails while maintaining three points of contact or can they use both?
3: Yeah, so I think really the key there is to maintain those three points of contact. Um, There is some ongoing research about whether using rungs or rails is better. Um, But basically, if you're using a ladder and not moving up and down, there's evidence that holding onto a rung provides better protection and is better to prevent a fall as compared to holding the rail. Uh, The advantage of rungs over rails is not as clear when you're climbing the ladder and trying to maintain those three points of contact. Um, This can depend on how the user maneuvers up and down uh, the ladder with their arms and legs. Uh, For example, some users climb with a foot and a hand moving at the same time, so that would uh, create two points of contact and might lead to instability. However, if you're holding the rail in that case, um, you might be able to slide your hands along the rail and uh, keep that continuous three-point contact. Practically speaking, holding the rail might provide faster climbing and better body stability as compared to holding the rungs. And in the field, the rungs can get dirty or slippery from contaminated shoes. So essentially further research is needed to prove the benefits of one over the other. But the take home message is to maintain those three points of contact for the best stability.
2: So NIOSH has a ladder safety app. Can you uh, tell us what that can do or how it works?
3: Sure. Um, It was actually the first NIOSH smartphone app that was developed. And um, it was created by uh, our NIOSH NIOSH research safety engineer, Peter Semenov and several other NIOSH colleagues in collaboration with the American Ladder Institute and the ANSI A14 Standards Committee on Ladder Safety. So the app has an angle measuring tool for extension ladders which uses the sensors in your smartphone to help the user set the ladder at the right angle. And we talked about that 75 degree angle. It's kind of hard to think about that. Um, But when you're using the app, it shows you um, the angle measuring tool will beep and vibrate when the user has found that proper 75 degree angle uh, for positioning your extension ladder. So within the app menu, there's also a visual interactive safety guide for both step ladders and extension ladders to help a user select, inspect, position, and use their ladder, as we previously discussed in the first question. And the beauty of the NIOSH Ladder Safety App is that it can be used in the field. Um, It's right in your pocket, or it can be used as an educational tool in a classroom setting as well. The NIOSH Ladder Safety app is convenient and easy to use and interactive, and it can help ladder users identify some of those common errors that might lead to instability or structural failure or other types of injuries. Um, It's free, and it's won some awards. And it's available for Apple and Android devices in both English and Spanish. And it has some pretty positive reviews, uh, nearly half a million downloads. As of November 2021. So for more information you can easily download the app and um, get an idea of what's going on at cdc.gov slash NIOS slash topics slash falls slash mobile app. It's
0: all great information on, on the app and we thank you. Uh, for those though who want to improve their ladder safety further, what are some other resources out there you recommend to help?
3: So there's a lot of information. It can be a little overwhelming, but most of the training resources are based on OSHA regulations and the ANSI A14 standards. And those remain the primary sources of information on ladder safety. But in addition to that, the American Ladder Institute website provides links to training materials and videos that are an excellent starting point for anyone wanting to improve their ladder safety knowledge. And um, we can share several links to OSHA regulations um, and some fact sheets and, and other tools that might be helpful.
2: Well, thank you so much, Dr. Associates Morales, for sharing your insights on this topic. It was really great to have you join us here on the safe side.
3: Yeah, thank you.
1: As you listen to this podcast today, the NFL season has come to an end. And for many, like yours truly, we've currently entered a sports vacuum. The NCAA basketball tournament doesn't happen for another month. Baseball is played only where palm trees live, and football won't be around for another six months or so. So just what in the world do we do with our downtime after football season? I'll get us started today. For me, it's pretty simple. And this probably sounds pretty strange to some of you, but I DVR a lot of football games. uh, And I tend to watch them during the, the lean months of TV sports coverage in February and March that is a, a big go to for me, and I always like when ESPN reruns uh, some of its top bowl games of the year. So, Alan, how about you?
2: Well, thankfully the uh, the Bulls are halfway decent this year, so um, that's kind of when I tune into the NBA. For I, I've been tuning into the NBA more often, and also um, tune in a little bit more because of the uh, the playoff push. So, Kevin, what about you? <laughs>
0: I'm a, a fan of uh, kind of going down the roster of cable sports programming, your your Fox Sports twos and your your CBS sports networks. Um, not so much off the beaten path stuff, but I'll, I'll still watch uh, a decent amount of of hockey. A big fan of the St. Louis Blues, but also kind of jumping into some of these games if they're late. But uh, also, we'll pick up on some some racket sports. Uh, I think I've mentioned my my penchant for pickleball on this program before, but also follow a little bit of ATP and and WTA tennis tours, but uh, thankful it's an Olympic year with the winter games in Beijing, but even in non-Olympic years, I know the Olympic channel and some of the aforementioned networks will have skiing or just some sort of winter sport that takes you into that for a little while before moving on to something else.
1: Well, thanks guys. Now we want to hear from you, our listeners. Go ahead and share your thoughts on how you fill that sports vacuum at this time of year by emailing us at safehealth at nsc.org or checking in with the hashtag SafeSidePopQuiz on social media.
2: Thank you so much for joining us for this month's episode. We know that your time is valuable and we're grateful that you spent some with us. If you'd like to share some feedback, email us at safehealth@nsc.org. at We also appreciate you sharing a rating and review of this podcast. To find stories such as my feature on the inner workings of regulations and ETSs, as well as the latest news from around the safety world, Visit us online at safetyandhealthmagazine.com. Also, make sure you follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. Original music for this podcast was composed by Steve Maslin. Thank you so much, Steve. We'll be back next month with another episode to have more safety-related discussions, talk to trusted voices from around the profession, and hopefully make you smile a little. In the meantime, we appreciate you listening via whatever platform, and feel free to spread the word about this podcast. Most of all, stay on the safe side.